What you heard there was the funeral scene from uh, Lord of the Rings, the funeral for Theodred. And uh, that is to introduce what we're going to be talking about today. It's going to be a very a long funeral. So welcome to the uh, Writing History podcast, where we talk about histories and history writers and uh, why they write history and what they're trying to do and accomplish and the, the picture they paint of the world and the arguments they make about their past, the present, and the future. So today I have with me uh, Christina Leverkus, who has a uh, she's an archaeologist. She has a, a bachelor's degree in archaeology and anthropology from uh, from Brigham Young University and a master's degree in uh, archaeology also, right, from uh, University of Oslo. And recently completed, um, well, recently was able to uh, complete her master thesis on the funeral mounds at Borre. So uh, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so uh, first of all, of course, uh, why do you uh, like graves so much? I guess is one of the questions. <laughs> That's a slightly morbid question. Um, <laughs> it's very fitting for Halloween, I thought. Uh, after Halloween. yeah, definitely right. No, um, I um, the graves within when studying archaeology, graves and burial practices has always fascinated me, um, and I think it has a lot to do with the fact that the way we treat our dead and the memory of our dead shows a lot about how we think about our living. <laughs> um, they're definitely tied together, you know, and of course there's a lot of symbolism involved in how we treat the dead bodies. Um, there's a lot of often religion involved, which goes into the um, traditions, mentalities, um, all these different things. So it really, I feel in many ways like the, the burial practices, which the graves are then a result of, um, really almost are the epitome of the whole culture. Like everything kind of is expressed. That's where it all uh, ends up kind that. of thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, it, it's um, in some ways you could say it, it's, it is a kind of transcendent thing, right? Uh, to to uh, bury someone a certain way uh, because looking from a completely utilitarian point of view they've kind of they're not they can't be used as labor force anymore uh they've kind of you they don't have any use uh, they're just like become a dead body in that sense mm-hmm. um and then to expend extra energy than just you know the basics of making sure they're not you know don't spread diseases or anything like that um and to actually take care and uh, time even when you know sometimes resources are quite limited in those societies uh, it really says a lot about, you know, what how they viewed, I guess, people, how they viewed life, death. Um, so yeah, that definitely um, says. I agree. It says a lot about a culture. Mm, yeah, exactly. Uh, I guess there's also the thing that uh, it's one of the only things you actually have remains of, right? <laughs> a lot of yeah, other things I mean, in archaeology. You get just, a few just, other just remains, but within when you are dealing with archaeology, right. um, the the best finds are usually the ones that come from graves because they are because they are down there on the garbage. Archaeology right. is right. often it's garbage. digging garbage. Right. Yeah. While in the graves, it's one of the few cases where you're not finding the broken pottery left behind from someone who didn't clean up their hearth pit properly. You right. Know? They, they, they're putting in often the best things from their society. Something is put in the earth on purpose. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about not just graves, but also other things that are put in the earth, uh, buried treasure um, mm. that is often buried together with 
a person, but sometimes not. Sometimes not. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, uh, I'd like to take you first through a couple of uh, texts uh, that describe uh, buried treasure. Then um, first start with a couple of that are not your area of expertise specifically, uh, and then we'll move more into the the Viking and Nordic Nordic Europe uh, area. So I'd like to start uh, just to get to your thoughts a little bit about uh, this uh, passage from that I came across when I was reading Jordanus's the Jordanus's. The Origin and Deeds of the Goths. And uh, he writes about Alaric, who sacked Rome. So they took everything except for the things that were in the churches, because they were Christian. Um, so Alaric, he said, like, well, don't don't touch the, the you know, the holy places. Uh, but everything else, you know, Rome was still pretty uh, rich without that. And it says, um, and so he, they sacked Rome, took all these this loot and wanted to go further south into Africa, but they weren't able to cross because of different things. But since man is not free, this is quoting now, to do anything he wishes without the will of God, that dread strait sunk several of his ships and threw all into confusion. Alaric was cast down by his, his reverse and, while deliberating what he should do, was suddenly overtaken by an untimely death and departed from human cares. His people mourned for him with the utmost affection, and then turning from its course the river Bucentus, uh, near the city of Consentia, which today is Consenta, for this stream flows with, it ho- with its wholesome waters from the foot of a mountain near that city, they led a band of captives into the midst of its bed to dig out a place for its, its grave. In the depths of this pit, so of the, from the riverbed, and they buried Alaric together with many of his treasures and then turned the waters back into their channel. And that none might ever know the place, they put the dead to death all the diggers. Now, uh, as an archaeologist, uh, how do you read this or what are some things that stand out to you here? <laughs> um, well, I think uh, whenever water is um, mentioned in association with death, there's always symbolism um, associated with it. And uh, I mean, archaeologists are blamed a lot for (laughs) putting symbolism on absolutely everything, but there is a lot of evidence within the archaeological record that water, and within historical records as well, that water has a very special connection in many cultures. And it makes sense. I mean, water is the gift of life, right? Without water, we can't survive. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also mysterious and um, and unknown, right? you can't see the bottom of many of these places where water is, and a river would be the same, you know, unless you have these beautiful clear rivers, but in many cases, right? Right, so it hides things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, um, you do get this connection to the other world, that when, when items, whether they be um, bodies or treasures, um, that when they go into water, they're often um, being sent to the next world, which fits nicely with this, um, with this doing, record here of the, the burial, where they're right. actually creating a burial at the bottom of a river and then letting the waters cover it again. And so they, uh, I mean, it seems like they believe that he was then being able to pass into another world and could take all these treasures with him, right? Mm. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of examples of that, isn't it, of like... Um, also, the, uh, all, the, all the ones who had made the grave being killed 
I guess that was to prevent them from uh, coming back and despoiling the grave or taking the treasures. Yeah, and you have several examples of that as well throughout um, throughout history and throughout the world as well. Um, a very Sadly. famous one is in Egypt, for example, with okay. the tombs there. It was a very common, um, well, at least in certain periods and times, it was a practice where um, those who created the tombs and painted the tombs, the workers and the slaves would be put to death afterwards so that no one would know where the graves were. Thanks for your work. Mm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're done. Oh, we're done. <laughs> mm-hmm. The end of our labor and end of everything else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Was there also a, I don't know, the, um, I've seen also uh, referenced sometimes that it seem, they believe that if you killed someone over a grave or or over perhaps a, uh, a uh, treasure deposit, it was believed that the spirit of that person that you had killed there would be able to kind of guard that treasure as a kind of ghost or a kind of, um, uh, yeah, or become a kind of like a barrel wicked, wicked, a white, I guess you could call it, that person that would be able to um, somehow make that a forbidden place or place that people wouldn't be able to find or penetrate into. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely superstition associated with um, murder. There is, even today as well, mm. if there's a house where there was murder, you know, that... The unhappy yeah. ghost is still haunting that house, you know. So, right. um, so yeah, I mean, there's examples of that too. And you also have examples of um, of um, the dead in the graves protecting their graves too, right? Not just the people are murdered to hide where the grave is, but the actual person who's been interred is protecting the grave, both his body, which is maybe sitting on a throne inside the grave uh, as a spirit comes out and protecting the treasures that are there as well from being taken. Um, and people have to overcome this spirit to be able to take out the treasures that they've come to get. So there's the, therein lies the, the dread and the mm. kind of the, the, the danger mm-hmm. and the adventure. And uh, talking of adventure, you need to specify right here, right? Archaeologists are not Indiana Jones. They're not treasure hunters. No. Um, (laughs) (laughs) They wish they could be, but... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm sure everyone always... I mean, the treasure hunting is something that has probably always been something that has fascinated everyone. Um, But I do think and hope that the definition of treasure might have changed, especially for archaeologists. Right, where the, the, the archaeological, historical value, cultural value of things, right? right Instead exactly. of just, is this of gold? Oh, no, then we're going to throw it away. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, provenience is everything we say in archaeology. So, you know, if you don't know where the treasure came from, it's not important. So Indiana Jones, as wonderful as it is, the way he just takes artifacts and runs away without registering anything drives <laughs> every serious archaeologist crazy. All, and all the things that get destroyed on the way, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's like, ah. <laughs> so the, uh, but having said that, <clears throat> I can't help but wondering that this was allegedly happened in 410. Mm-hmm. And uh, when uh, Jordanus is writing this, it's in 552. So it's, uh, it's roughly uh, 140 years after. Um, mm-hmm. Which, you know, that's some time, you know, we have, uh, there's a big difference between the 1860s and now. Um, but again, it's not in very far back history, and Jordanus was a goth himself, right? And once you've done this thing, you've uh, put the treasure 
somewhere along a riverbed, underwater and under earth, it's essentially inaccessible for people in those days. Mm-hmm. So you may as well say that the treasure is hidden on the moon. Um, but in our days, I don't know. Like uh, so, you know, that's the river Vicentia. There's still that river today, Consenza. This is still that city. Mm-hmm. Um, could someone just like take some uh, powerful metal detectors and go down on a boat or some uh, divers and uh, potentially uh, uncover the loot of a sack of Rome? That would be quite an amazing find, I think. It would definitely be an amazing find, that's for sure. Um, and I guess in a way... Of course, there'll be a lot of the metal in that river, for sure. You know? <laughs> right, yeah. And that's the thing. Um, so you have maybe somewhat of a treasure map in this historical record, but mm-hmm. I think it would be a much harder job than just going to a river and to start looking for this treasure um, because you know, over 500 years has passed away. Right. A lot of things happen at the bottom of a river during 500 years. Also, the um, river may change its course, right? The river may change its course. We don't know who else might have been there during that time, just because we don't know that anything of this has been found. You know, things may have trickled out and stuff. Who knows? Um, I mean, you wouldn't find this neatly neat collection of a burial grave at the bottom of a river 500 years later. Um, but, I mean, there are... Something that is happening in archaeology a lot these days are these non-invasive archaeological methods. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I'm not really ground penetrating radar. With, and stuff like yeah, that. exactly. Yeah. I'm not very familiar with what would work underwater. I have to admit, but you know, over over the land, <laughs> looking into the soil, there's a lot of different um, tools coming now. But something that people don't really often know is how little they actually tell us Mm. um there's been cases where um they've found in the so um ground penetrating radar for example is one of the most common ones which is basically where it takes um it reflects off every time it bounces off of a different um I mean, it's, it's kind of like the the echolocation under underwater right exactly um but the problem is you know, it has to be a fairly large structure or uh, inconsistency to be registered. Mm. And nature creates some very random things, which you would think are human structures or man-made. And then you go into the ground and you discover that that was like actually circles, just... triangles. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I don't know what the equivalent would be. I mean, echolocation is one, but you, you wouldn't be able to find a sword using echolocation right. Right, because it's just not precise enough. It'd have to be some kind of like uh, cairn or, or some like stone structure or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like you say, um, uh, metal detecting has become very popular um, and that would maybe be something that you could try, but, you know, doing metal detecting in a river, you'd probably be getting um, um, beeps the whole time. Right, old um, coins, you know. A lot of trash. Garbage, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's good archaeology too, right? <laughs> that's true. <laughs> There's probably a lot of modern contamination in that river as well, would be my guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm guessing too. All right. So, but uh, if there are any archaeologists out there that or people that want to fund an archaeology search <laughs> for the grave of Alaric in the in the uh, river of Basentia near the city of Consanza, uh, feel you can feel rec- feel free to uh, start such a kind of initiative and find the yeah. spo- lost <laughs> spoils of Rome from uh, 410 AD. Second one. Um, in uh, This is from um, 
the Georgian Chronicles, and it talks about the uh, the Christian at that time Christian Kingdom of Georgia um, that was uh, allied with the uh, Byzantine Empire, and uh, it was at the beginning of the uh, Muslim conquests, um, and they were wondering whether they should fight against them or whether it was kind of God's will that they would be uh, winning for a while and that they should instead try try another tactic. And this is what it says is that, um, let's see here, let's make sure I have the right one. Okay. So there was a uh, treasure, or what the, it wasn't gathered as a treasure until this threat appeared. Um, but at that time, it says that the uh, they informed King Heraclius, that is uh, the Byzantian king, that the Hagarines, so that that's what they called the Muslims, had invaded uh, Sam and Jazireti, which is Mesopotamia. Heraclius set out for Palestine in order to battle there, but there was a certain monk, a man of God, and he said to the king, "Flee, because the Lord has given the east and the south to the Saracens." which means the dogs of Sarah, uh, the astrologers and expert soothsayers reported these words of the monk to King Heraclius. And the King Heraclius erected a pillar and inscribed on it, Farewell Mesopotamia and Palestine until seven weeks have passed. Concerning the week, they found later, uh, a period of time defined in the book of the philosopher Hermes Trismegistus, Trismegistus, with regard to the Saracens, that it's actually, uh, it wasn't seven weeks, it's 250 years. So from the time to Alexander down to the appearance of Muhammad was 927 years of the Alexandrian era. So there's some kind of destiny based on the numbers there. And then all the noble families of the Greeks buried their treasures in the ground. Um, and this is specifically in Georgia. So that after they had departed, they might recover their treasures and might not have the trouble of taking them away and bringing them back again. The emperor Heraclius advanced on the road to Ran and again to Katli, and then he talked to the Persian people who had taken refuge from the Saracens. You know that your kingdom has been destroyed, abandoned the north and come to us. And they left the country and buried their treasures. Some went away, while others remained. They placed deeds with their treasure, so that if you were to open the treasure now, you'd be able to see like a deed with it that this belongs to this and this person. And that would be very interesting <laughs> if, if you could find such a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they wrote a deed, they put down their family and the land. So once this scourge has passed our land, we want our land back. And they deposited these so that when the Greeks came through these deeds, they should be able to find their families and distribute to each its land and treasure. Um, and uh, so they buried most of the treasure in the valley of Kacheti, and that's a place in uh, Georgia the vessels of gold and silver in the valley of Ujarma, while he deposited the treasures of Kartli and Yavakseti at the hill which Heraclius himself had designated for the hiding of those treasures which they did not take away with them. The name of the hill is Tontlo, which means mountain of gold. On, On it he placed a talisman so that no one could remove the treasure. So again, kind of like a guardian here, right? Hmm. Uh, but he buried the treasure of all the churches of Kartli in the shadow of the great cathedral at Mishketa. And that was the uh, capital city at the time. And uh, <coughs> it said later then that um, they 
this treasure keeps reappearing. The the uh, the Muslims when they came, they realized, oh, there's no loot here. It's all been buried or some taken somewhere, um, and they found out it had been buried, but then could never find out where it had been buried. Um, mm. And so afterwards, they actually uh, torture and kill one of the lineage of the king um, in order to uh, be able to try to pry out of them where is this treasure. Uh, but there's never a mention that this treasure was rediscovered and dug up, even though this is written um, within that time period. Um, so the first part of the uh, Georgian Chronicles was most likely written uh, around 800 uh, AD or CE, whatever, whichever you want to use. Um, and it says specifically, uh, there are a couple of places there that, okay, the Valley of Ujama, that could be kind of a large area, but specifically in the shadow of the great cathedral at Mishketa. That seems quite specific. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. Yeah. <laughs> Again, another one where it's like, could you go there and dig something up? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, Georgia is, unlike a lot of other places, just... Um, like archaeologically, there's just it's just right in front of you, and there's just so few resources. Um, mm. It's like history is vanishing before your eyes, but you don't have um, you don't really have uh, until recently uh, a whole lot of um, conservation of these things. There are castles everywhere that's uh, smoldering on top of mountains and all kind of things that uh, uh, you're just surrounded by it, imbued by with it, but uh, not uh, you know the kind of monuments and the kind of history that uh, in other countries you'd hope uh, people would, you know, uh, flock and gather money and, and to conserve and to keep this. Yeah, yeah. And historically, I guess, cultural history or cultural management has kind of been deprioritized in many of these um, Well, it's still a poor places. country. It's still a poor country. And <coughs> until exactly. recently, it's become much more of a tourism destination, but it's still, mm. you know. And I think that's what people are starting to realize is by by increasing the cultural management and taking care of the cultural history, they can increase their tourism. And in that way, you know, archaeology can actually do some good. It's not just about focusing about on the past, but, you know, finding ways to preserve the present and look to the future. So, but as far as the archaeological record, um, you know, uh, are there many, you know, some people talk about buried treasure being a myth um, that, you know, it's it mentioned in a lot of places, but... Very often, there's not a whole lot there, um, but uh, you mentioned that there there have been quite a lot of kind of caches discovered where it just seems people just left it there and they planned to dig it up again and they just never did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're referred to as deposits. Uh, so you talked about it in the beginning, right? When we mentioned that most times in archaeology we're dealing with garbage, but every once in a while we find <laughs> something that was purposefully left in the ground, right. and that's usually in graves or it's in what are referred to as deposits. Um, and you find them quite a bit in Scandinavia. Really? Um, especially during the Viking Age, you have the silver hordes. Um, and it's basically people's, well, they're interpreted as two different things. And, and both interpretations could be correct and there could be more things as well. But the main two explanations for this is one of them, it's people's personalized banks. Mm. Because you don't have a bank to right. go and store your, your riches in. Um, and silver is, you know, the main Universal currency kind of thing, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, but another interpretation is that these are offerings to mm. the gods. Uh, and again, it's um, even though it's not necessarily water, although you do find people depositing um, wealth and riches into water. Mm 
specifically. Um, bogs bogs uh, are, yeah. mm-hmm, are very common, but also lakes and rivers and stuff too. But you find them in the ground as well. And it does, you know, it, it is, so it could also be sacrificing where you, you know, you're giving them up from this world and putting them into another world by putting them physically into the ground. So, so where are these usually found? Um, they... Um, just like uh, caves or is it like no they could be connected to farms for example they could be out in the forest Um, i don't know enough about that to be able to say specifically but as far as i'm aware there's no they're not necessarily a rule to where they are located right but usually you'll just uh so have these been discovered just like in fields where people have like uh you know yeah and they are accidental finds like this isn't people following a treasure map in any way whatsoever. Right. Uh, metal detecting has definitely resulted in a few of these being discovered, that's for sure. Um, sort of otherwise, amateur archaeology going on. Yeah, and also just uh, luck. Um, yeah. You know, um, there's a road being built and they happen to discover it. Someone is plowing their field, um, you know, things like that. Yeah, why do we dig in the earth nowadays, right? Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. I, I was talking about the our neighbor actually. Uh, they uh, was uh, building his house, and they found uh, the remnants of a, an old Viking sword. Not not the Viking sword itself; that was most of it gone. But they could. It was kind of the fastenings that mm. would be the part of a Viking sword, mm-hmm. um, which uh, you know very interesting. Just because he was you know digging a uh, digging in the earth to be able to um, expand his uh, garage or to build build his garage. Yeah, yeah, and that is the most common way to find artifacts. Of course, artifacts. tons of things must have been just, you know, it was there, but it just got dug up and just thrown away. It's kind of luck that with a huge digger like that that you find anything and you actually Definitely. are yeah, able to uh, keep an eye on it. It's painful to think about all the stuff that's been lost. Um, I mean, I talked about what the Walmart uh, built a new store very close to um, uh, the uh, Teatu Huacan. And that mm. uh, on the way they must have dug up a lot of remains and that they just uh, threw it away in order to not have to be stopped by the government so they couldn't build their Walmart there. Yeah, and we could do a separate podcast, not about writing history, but about the misconceptions. History, yeah. um, and the misconceptions about what would actually happen if someone was to find something on their property. And because there are a lot of, because they wouldn't just um, stop you. Misunderstandings about that, and that, that causes a lot of unnecessary conflict where, of course, you know, uh, people own their own land. But at the same time, our heritage is a national ownership. You know, it belongs to everyone. Um, so I often say that about that when we have people visiting Bodo, and we're going to talk a bit about the Great Mounds there. But mm-hmm. I do point that out to everyone coming. Like, these belong to everyone here in Norway. And, you know, if we have guests, then they're welcome to come and enjoy it too. But, you know, it's a, it, it belongs to Norway, not to the individuals. And that's a good, uh, actually, it's a good, good transition there about uh, the, so the buried uh, treasure. And uh, the, uh, we've talked about the Goths. We talked about the Georgians. Uh, we moved a little bit up to some of the caches that have been found in Norway and Scandinavia of silver uh and uh you work at uh Boide, which is uh as i understand the largest collection has the largest collection of monumental mounds in northern europe is that correct mm, that's correct yes so if you were to go to Boide, you can do a little pitch here but if you were to go to Boide, the where you work now in this uh at this uh museum is that what you would call it uh but i 
cultural center. A cultural center. Mm -hmm. uh, what would people see when they when they if they go there? The, they would see an incredible landscape uh, where you feel like you're taking back in time. Um, but around this, then there's this cultural center that's been built up, enabled to enhance people's experience of this uh, cultural historical landscape. So the museum, or so I mean, I yeah, it's it's not a museum because we don't own any of our own artifacts, mm. but otherwise it's a museum in every other sense of the word. I mean, people come and experience a museum. We have exhibits, um, and we also have a reconstructed um, feasting hall, um, and uh, so it's called the Midgard Viking Center. So we focus a lot on the Viking Age, um, although the cultural history landscape around it is. Um, Much both older, the Merovingi right? Merovingian yeah. time period, which is right before the Viking Age, and then goes into the Viking Age. Mm. Um, so, so we have this reconstruction of this Viking Age chieftain hall, uh, which they've also found um, remnants of in the ground there. So there would have been at least three that we know of, probably four. And this, of course, uh, is uh, one uh, area that is mentioned by uh, a lot of the saga writers. Uh, mm. As so, even in the Viking Age itself, it was a famous place. Um, it uh, and whether or not this is historically accurate, and again, uh, written history is very different than arche archaeological history, right? Because because what you have in writing, you may not find in the ground, and what you find in the ground ground, you may not have any written record of whatsoever. Which is like we found something here, and it obviously has meaning. We have no idea where it came from. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, and uh, so, according to Snorri Sturluson. Which I talked about on the in the first episode, there are at least two uh, great Viking kings that are buried uh, at Bode. Oystein, mm. uh, uh, you called him Oystein Fret, he's uh, also called Oystein Halfdanson. Uh, and uh, Halfdan Oystenson is another one. Um, and then there are several others buried, who are supposed to be buried um, close by which were in the lineage uh, of, uh, or some of the ancestors of uh, Harald Horfagre, who gathered Norway, mm. according to Snorri, at least. Yeah. And these are collectively known as the Vestfold kings. So Vestfold is the county in Norway. Well, now it's Vestfold and Tenmark, because they've combined it. But, but yeah, Vestfold is the traditional county, and there's a few of the kings that, according to Snorri, are buried in Vestfold. So the uh, with these uh, burial mounds, uh, we don't actually know how that the burial was the purpose of all of them, right? They uh... no, and uh, it's a very important argument that has been made uh, recently um, that you know whether or not you should call a mound a grave mound just because it looks like a grave mound isn't necessarily the right thing, because there have been cases where these mounds have been excavated and they haven't found any. Um, any human remains whatsoever and is it then right to call it a grave mound um, and there's different interpretations for why those kind of mounds exist one of them is that they could be a um, a memorial mound uh, known as a a cenotaph mm. i think if i'm pronouncing that correctly right um but it's basically a mound that's been erected in honor of uh, someone who uh, died somewhere else and they weren't able to bring uh, the remains back, which would make sense in the case of the Vikings, for example, if someone died in a battle in England or something like that, then carrying the body or, or lost at sea, um, maybe more probable even, you know, you can't retrieve that body. Mm. So um, it's like a memorial plaque in some ways. Yeah, what exactly. What we would have today. Mm. So that could be one reason. Another one is that they can also be boundary markers, you know, um, or supposed to 
indicate an important part in the landscape. I mean, people are traveling uh, by sea. They need to be able to know when they've reached a certain point and then the, the mounds could have had that as a function as well, although they could also function like that with and be a grave mound at the same mm. time. They're not necessarily... Um, um, they don't exclude each other. And so some of these mounds are, are quite massive, like you said, the largest gathering of monumental mounds in Northern Europe, at least that we know of, right? Mm. Um, so when did they start making like, large mounds like this? I mean, people have obviously been burying uh, burying people since the Stone Age, and you know the 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 uh, pyramids are you know can be seen as huge graves, uh, huge yeah, monuments definitely. to the to the dead. <laughs> yeah, I mean they definitely are. Um, so, but what in uh, but yeah, northern Europe uh, or in Norway, when do when do we start seeing these mounds? You have mounds in the Bronze Age, and the Bronze Age is actually known for its large mounds. Um, although often they are made of stones, their currents is what you would call them then. So they're just stones piled on top of each other. Reiser is with the Norwegian word for it, right? Steinreiser, mm-hmm. exactly. Uh, and that's um, that's very common during the Bronze Age, although you do have mounds as well, which then by definition are made of dirt instead. Mm. Um, but a lot of these monumental mounds that... Um, the ones that you see at Buddha and a few others, they start appearing around um, uh, somewhere between 500 to 600 AD, around 550 really, <laughs> is when a lot of these first ones start appearing. And there's something that happens, it's a super interesting time in Scandinavian archaeology and European archaeology in general, because there's so much going on. Uh, some kind of time. disaster is, is is the theory, right? That there there's been several some disasters kind of... happening at that time. There's epidemics going on. There's possibly a volcano erupting somewhere, causing which uh, has been speculated to be Fimbulvinteren, which according to Norse mythology is like this uh, summer with no summer. Oh yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there's also cultural changes going on, which might be as a reaction to what's happening. But, um, but for example, in Norway, pottery basically disappears uh, and you don't really have pottery during the Viking age. Um, but what also happens during this time is you get these large mounds um, like at Buddha um, popping up and a lot of the smaller graveyards would have the smaller mounds. They kind of seem to go into disuse. Um, and it's been interpreted as a centralization um, that people are kind of... Um, the erection of an elite is, is yeah. what you're saying, right? That the because mm-hmm. the the rich always want the biggest and the best. Yeah, it's kind <laughs> of interpreted as like this vacuum f- that the powerful are basically taking advantage of. Mm. But you don't agree. Uh, no. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say I don't exactly agree, but I feel like there are other interpretations that are possible to look into. Right. Uh, because this has kind of just been taken for granted in many ways. Um, and it makes a lot of sense, I, I would mean, agree. I mean, it's a somewhat uh, communist reading of, of history, in a sense. Right? Yeah, right. possibly. That, and the, uh, the, that any kind of thing that is uh, extraneous uh, beyond just the basic needs are signs of elites wanting to show off. Right. And there's good arguments for it. I mean, you yeah, need yeah. someone organizing this. So, I mean, there has to be some sort of, someone has to be in charge. Right, either um, a slave master or at least, you know, someone that <laughs> has, exactly. the, has the means to organize or the threats or whatever else to organize huge amounts of people to do something. Exactly, yeah. Uh, but my my issue with it is that I think it's oversimplifying things and not taking into uh, account 
all the disasters that are going on and how that would impact everyone, not just the elites, but you know, everyone would feel the effects of the crops failing, um, of the gods abandoning them, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and so without us having to go into too much of the details here, but I mean, I do think that there's room for interpretation of more of a group solidarity taking effect. The fact that people want to build everyone would benefit from building up the society and what is interesting and relates to this podcast is this about hidden treasures and you would see these you see these amazing mounds you know they're 40 meters in diameter they're huge they're six seven meters tall amazing structures and in you know the common interpretation is someone wealthy and powerful must have been buried there Mm. you open up the mounds and there is nothing in there except for some cremated bones um, but then you look at the construction of the mound itself and maybe the hidden treasures in this sense aren't, it's not as much the artifacts in the mounds, but it's the mound itself because it's built up in such a um, specific way. It's thought out. It's not just a pile of dirt. You know, they have layers and the material that they're using are treasures in the sense that they're important materials for the society as a whole. Um, there's a lot of wood being burnt um, to make um, charcoal layers and wood would have been a very valuable commodity for the people. Um, they're building them on agricultural land, so they're wasting, you know, in print and um, utilitarian terms. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, wasting the land by building this huge mound on it. Now it's not used for agricultural land, but they're they're giving up the agricultural land and they're also using this agriculture, this rich soil in the mounds themselves. Um, so it wasn't just like a structure of like, oh, let's just throw up some earth here, right? No, not uh, at all. And, you know, the building, it's been argued as well, could have been its own ritual. Um, again, going back to why I think graves are fascinating to begin with. I mean, anything that is more than necessary gives us indications about the people building the mountain. And here they're going way up beyond what's necessary to cover this tiny little burnt cremation thing that's at the very, very bottom of the mound, you know. Very, um, yeah. yeah, it's it's very interesting. I, I just remember like a theory that uh, I read about uh, Teotihuacan, mm-hmm. where they talk about that uh, there were like a lot of natural disasters before the building of it, mm-hmm. and you have these like groups coming from very different tribes and gathering together, and there were a lot of vo- volcanoes that had erupted and earthquakes in the in the uh, that had destroyed a lot where they were before, and they gather together and build what some believe was kind of this man-made volcano instead, or kind of like Mount, this, uh, mm. you know, which becomes the, the pyramids of the sun and the moon. Yeah. Um, and become, you know, it, uh, after what we know were quite large natural disasters, a relatively unified society. They, as far as they know, there wasn't a very kind of stratified society between the rich and the poor. And there you have huge mounds and not very clear stratification in the society, uh, according to this reading of it, at least. Yeah, that's super interesting to hear, actually. And it is, you know, what I'm thinking about here, what's happening at Buddha and what's happening with a lot of other of these mounds that do appear to be built up. The the more specific the dating becomes, the more it seems like they're dating from around 550, which is exactly this time period when, well, you know, it's a few years after all these catastrophes, which makes sense because you need some time to gather yourself together and figure out what you're going to do. It's not like you have a disastrous yeah and the next year you spend all the resources in the landscape you know mm. so, so you need some time to recuperate and stuff like that too but i, get, but I think yeah, yeah. sorry I, I didn't want to interrupt you there i think you had something that you wanted to say well, i was yeah. just um 
I just think the response to disasters is very interesting and we're living in a very interesting time now as well where we can actually see it in our own society with this pandemic that's going on um and maybe it hasn't come you know we're kind of getting a little immune to maybe not the disease but to the fact that it is here um but it was very interesting when it first came the word solidarity it did pop up a lot like we need to stand together we there's a lot of solidarity going on in the face of this disaster and mm-hmm. and so i think it's a very natural human thing and even though you know the typical idea of like the past is you know each man for themselves and uh, the strong, barbarians the strong people, and yeah. stuff but but you know there are also people that have relationships that have families that have friends and you know and and also just on a basic survival instinct you know you need a group to survive so when these disasters do come um it's not necessarily my point then being it's not necessarily this one leader or this one rich family saying okay well now in honor of my dead ancestor we're going to build this monumental mound and but build it's it or the die. people coming together sacrificing their treasures which are the wood the agricultural land their time and resources and in that sense this mound is an offering from the people and it's something that stands out right in the landscape mm-hmm. it's uh and especially um in Vestfold which is you know uncharacteristically from Norway uh extremely flat yeah <laughs> whereas Norway is full of full of mountains but but Vestfold is very very flat and they make their own mountain and it stands out in the landscape right and that is one i mean that's definitely an important purpose of these mounds you see that where they choose to build these mounds they're choosing strategic places it's not random um it was interesting actually even in um um even in the sagas when Snorri is writing about why the mounds are built you can see it's not entirely true um because he mentions that um uh, is it Harald Hårfagre Harald Hefe's sons are killed in battle and then mounds are cast up on them where they died uh, which just happens to be on the top of this already existing um hill that stands out and the mounds are just perfectly located so that you have a beautiful view all the way around you can see far away they're easy to be spotted from far away right. it probably has more to do with the location rather than that two people have to die they were most likely at that exact spot brought there somewhere yeah mm-hmm. yeah and the uh, uh just back to what you were talking about i mean the, the, there are different uh, theories and i think you know both true about what happens to people in extreme situations right mm. that in extreme situations turns people into animals in a sense mm. you know they start eating each other you know we mm. have uh, records of during extreme hunger um you know uh, couples luring kids uh, off the road and and eating them yeah you know <laughs> those kind of things right mm. um and you have uh, the other theory about you know that um actually it's something that um at that point people reach out uh, much more because you need it in order to survive. Um, this idea of the survival of the fittest, you know, is not uh, the strongest, even though that was the translation into German. And we can mm-hmm. thank that for Nazism and social Darwinism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the, it was translated as the, the strong survival of the strongest, but the fittest means the pattern of life most suitable to survival. Mm-hmm. Right. And in times of need, a um, a uh, raiding culture take from this person and then they take from you and then burning and, and destroying crops and all those things that come with it, 
uh, are not very suited suited uh, fitted for survival. Uh, there's uh, it's it's something that uh, that uh, you may be able to survive in in good years, but during during very bad times, uh, that can be uh, very detrimental. Mm, no, it's true, and it's a lot more. Um, there's more chance of survival when you think further ahead. You know, when you're working together as a group. Um, but of course, what is interesting is there is no one reaction to disaster either. Right. No, and I think know. that uh, both are true. You know, mm-hmm. you can you can see. Yeah. Um, I mean, have perhaps during this pandemic, right? Some countries holding on to resources more than ever, uh, trying to you know. Uh, steal resources, scarce resources from other countries, whereas other people say, like, no, we can only do this together. We'll send doctors, we'll send uh, protective equipment, etc. Yeah, it's a good example of just, like, how different groups react and individuals react, you know, so, and then, yeah. So, uh, from what Snowdy writes uh, a little bit about the the funeral ritual, what he says is that it came from, or some of it at least, came from from further south, because Odin brought it with him. Uh, in Snorri, Odin is a historical character. He actually uh, is a chieftain down by close to the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. Um, mm. And he's leaving there because the Romans are coming. And they're incurring, in, doing an incursion into his territory. Uh, and that's why he takes his warriors and they go north. Um, and and go through Germany, Russia, Russia, or Russia, Germany, and then up, finally up to Denmark and then up to Sweden. Um, and in Snodde, he says that it was the Od- Odin that knew the magic of side or the the uh, the art of side magic, uh, and he was able to use that through certain spells, through certain rhymes, certain ways he talked, and he got knowledge of uh, human destiny and could uh, predict things that hadn't happened yet, and uh, he uh, knew where all buried goods were to find. So. Uh, whether or not it's true that this is this is about Odin, it's true that Snorri must have been able to appeal to a certain uh, desire in his audience for buried treasure at this point, right? Odin was powerful, and he was able to f- know where all buried treasures was to find, meaning that it must be a common conception that there's a lot of tr- treasure that has been buried and that has been lost in different places. Um, is what I think. Like otherwise, this would be kind of a absurd notion. What the treasure in the earth? What are you thinking about? Right? Yeah. No, definitely. And uh, he knew the songs that made the earth open, and uh, uh, earths and mountains and cliffs open, and uh, and haugs or or mounds open for him. And his words were strong enough to bind the ones that were in there. Mm. Meaning again, like the the wraiths or the the ghosts that were guarding the treasure yeah exactly and he went in and took whatever he wanted um and it says that that he brought with him laws about uh how people were supposed to be buried when he went up north and that uh everyone should be burnt on their graves or burnt uh, with everything they owned uh or that they should be buried with everything that they owned and everything that they were buried with, they would also um, reap benefit of. So everything you take with you, you will reap benefit of in the life to come. Mm. Um, and that, 
the ashes should either be thrown on the sea or bur- or or buried in the grave. Um, but for great men, you should build a mound. Mm. And of those who had shown great courage, you should also, in addition to, or you should uh, raise a cenotaph. Is that what you call it? Or, or yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Kind of a stone standing up, right? <coughs> St- standing, or a thin, kind of ra- rather thin st- stone standing up st- uh, straight. Yeah, well, more monolith then, right? Right, more monolith, mm. that's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's this, uh, this, uh, this, uh, Shik, say, uh, this custom mm. kept a long time afterwards. And then he talks about how it was an innovation of the ship burial when uh, there's this person that died somewhere where he knew he couldn't be buried like that, but he wanted to still be known as a as this strong and uh, courageous king. And he has to be taken on the ship and then they bur- and to have the ship burned. So there's he does chronicle this kind of development of uh, funeral rites. Um, and that uh, Odin takes with him, and then later people in his lineage kind of uh, innovate on the on those rites. Mm. Um, of course, wha- what you're saying is from the ar- archaeological record, we don't see that same kind of progression. No, uh, we see uh, he's. It's very interesting actually, because he's not all wrong, <laughs> which would make sense. I mean, a lot of these historical records do have some truth to them. <laughs> But, uh, but that's, what that's about as, as generous as an archaeologist will be to historians. <laughs> yeah, at least this archaeologist. <laughs> yeah. No, but what is very interesting is that it's, um, you know, we think of Odin as uh, a Viking god, which is true, but that's not where he starts. You know, he's an older tradition that the Vikings continue with. Um, and so, and it's interesting how Snutter writes about how Odin leaves the area of the Black Sea and travels through Germany and stuff because you have a lot of Odin worship in Germany as well, uh, where he's known as Woden instead. Wotan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's an earlier tradition than the Viking tradition. He's there first and then this tradition is brought. This religion comes up into Scandinavia. Um, And uh, once Snodder writes about how the rule is to cremate the bodies, uh, that is accurate with the earlier burial customs in Scandinavia before the Viking Age, uh, where Buddha, again, is a good example. What we seem to find, there hasn't been, um, there's a lot more that could be excavated at Buddha, but from the few kind of windows into the mounds that have been opened through excavations, it seems to be cremation burials with nothing else really in them. Uh, And cremation burials are very common during the Merovingian period. That is the burial tradition that dominates this time period. Again, the Merovingian time period is this. They're burned with everything. 200 years before the Viking Age. Mm -hmm. Um, While artifacts aren't really that common, but but you do find some. but then no, what they're, happens, they're burned with everything they own, not they're buried with everything they own. Right? Yeah, yeah, but I mean, if they're burnt with the things they own, these we wouldn't have cremations don't get that warm. They would actually, they would actually. Oh, be there traces. would be three. okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, because these cremations they're not even that warm that they burn. I mean, the the bodies don't disintegrate. You still find burnt bone. Oh, interesting. So it's not like when you cremate a body now in modern days right. in the crematoriums well, and would stuff, and all that left is ash. It would be gar- um, difficult to get that kind of heat. I yeah, guess. exactly. So you do you find the burnt remains, which is actually really good in archaeology because it's the bones preserve better when they're burnt than when they're not burnt. So it's a lot easier to find cremated 
burials than to find burials with inhumations, which is when they're buried without being burnt. Interesting. And that's what happens in the Viking Age then. Um, things just kind of, um, I would say, the spiral out of control when it comes to burials, but that's probably not quite the right term to use. Yeah, so like the, these burials are completely out of control. They're going crazy. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's not much to think <laughs> but about they really burials. are. There is like the rules just kind of seem to disappear. Um, and in some places, it seems to be customs kind of in separate places. But even within the same grave sites, you find different things. Um, For example? So, um, well, that you get like the whole variety. So you get, um, you get inhumations, you get cremations, you get um, ship burials with inhumations. Um, but you also have that body. You have a ship burial with a cremation inside. So the ship wasn't burned, but it looks like... The, whoever was buried was burnt with uh, like this mixture, cremation mixture of animals as well. That is fairly common: some sheep and goat and cows and stuff. Um, and then they're put in a cauldron and placed inside the ship. Um, but you also, and then you get boat burials, but you get chamber graves as well, where they're building little rooms in the ground and covering them up. Um, um so very yeah. eclectic yes just yeah, you know very very lots of different things happening during the viking age um and so what they're being buried with varies as well so kind of a little bit of passions like i want to be buried this way i want to be buried that way yeah we saw this in actually, we saw this in ireland that was kind of cool let's do that <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah uh, one theory that is kind of developing now and is getting a lot of attention is um, the idea that these burials that what we see are the remains of theoretical theatrical performances um but that the the burials the tradition during the viking age was to tell stories as the person is being buried and the elements that you see being placed into these burials are the elements of this ritual theatrical performance that's going on um yeah which would account for the large variety because depending on what story is being told and you know these stories might not you know it's Mm-hmm. It's an oral tradition culture, so none of these stories are written down. That doesn't happen until later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, therefore, you get these variations um, in the burials. Seems like, the again, if the historian's complaint here, right, is that there's so much scope for, for uh, <coughs> imagination and interpretation from these artifacts that... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that uh, you can get a lot of different results from very, from the same... Same same outer artifacts, right? Definitely, there's a lot of different ways to interpret one artifact, and that can impact how you interpret the whole culture. Mm. So uh, the so the um, so we see a different um, you see these kind of the arrival of these huge uh, monumental mounds, right? Mm. Um, as potentially a response to a disaster that people come together and build something that's kind of the theory that we want something we need some kind of permanence in the midst of this impermanence perhaps uh, mm. in, in the midst maybe of trying this to gain some control back some yeah even even if just symbolic like th- this mm. is something that you know we may all disappear the next year because we don't get any crops but this will remain from us mm-hmm. kind of in a way yeah um, and then you have after that you would say like kind of like a, a explosion of different kind of uh, of burial methods, uh, but Boda continues to be a center uh, w- 
where some of these mounds are, are built, right? Until up until the Christian era, which ends uh, the mound culture. Yeah, mm, that's correct. Yeah, because then you have the churchyard. Yes, and actually at Bodø, you do have one of the earliest churches. Yeah, it's one of the oldest stone churches in Norway, uh, which. You know, if it's a stone church, most likely there was an older church there before they could build the stone church. And it, I think it's from it's from the 1100s, uh, which is very early. Uh, and then again, with this like even older church probably being there before that, it, it shows that Christianity came to Buddha fairly early. Mm. Um, and the last burial mound is from 950. And after that, you don't have any more of these heathen burials which would be anything with a mound because that wasn't a part of the christian practice and so it seems likely then that they're probably starting to bury um at the churchyard and not only are they starting to bury but they're also uh that is the time when a lot of these burial mounds are opened right mm, that's true yes all of these large mounds at butter there are seven remaining we know that there's been at least nine of them most likely ten with the recent discovery couple years using ground penetrating radar mm, mm-hmm. yeah um but so seven remaining anyway all of these you can see these huge ditches in um in the mounds where it's um which are the remains of these mounds having been opened and we have one date from one of these mounds um but it's not a very good date <laughs> um as in the material mm-hmm. wasn't the most reliable but right. it seems to be For carbon, you could, carbon dating and deodorant. carbon dating yeah. exactly and you could argue that it is probably from around year 1000 between year 1000 and 1200 kind of seems to be the most likely time period and that is exactly in this key point in norway where the country is shifting from being a pagan uh, country to becoming Christian uh, and there are specific examples in the sagas where they talk about them going in and retrieving their ancestors from these mounds and giving them a Christian burial mm. so that their ancestors become Christian which at that point is a very important thing for power um, because the religion is closely connected to the power in the country. And uh, I mean this means that they they know enough about like okay they know that's my ancestor that's in there Mm. In that, so it's it's it you know it's clear enough at that point who these graves belong to. Yes, although you could also argue that the well, perhaps they just thought that they belonged to them. So exactly. Yeah. I mean, there is a possibility there because you know we're talking about two, three hundred years, which five hundred is str- isn't it for from thousand to five fifty? If you just start like the oldest. Yeah, ones. if we're talking about Abbotta with the large mounds, they st- uh, start popping up around five fifty, and then you have the last one nine fifty. So that's four hundred years. So th- um, and the, there are different r- theories about this, right? So there's that that's the bene- benevolent theory there that they opened them in order to uh, retrieve the. They were like, oh, um, now we find out the true way of burial, and we want mm. to make sure that they get these same blessings. So we're going to get them out of there and and bury them at the churchyard in Christian earth. Uh, get uh, get uh, uh, holy water sprinkled on them and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, exactly. All the all, all, them. all the all the rites. Um, even if it's just the bones, I mean, it's interesting. Also, you know, in the uh, in Exodus, that one of the things they bring from Egypt, with, if, if according to that record, is the bones of Joseph. Right? They took bones also from yeah. from Egypt to bring it to the right place where they wanted to bury him in the Promised Land. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, taking bones is uh, <laughs> is established. Yeah, I mean, practice. the the physical body <laughs> is important after death in a lot of cultures and right. has. 
it's still a way to connect to the person. Right. And it's, uh, uh, and kind of brings with it the heritage. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's also the theories, of course, I'm guessing that at this point they're like, oh, there's no magic in the mounds after all. Uh, Let's take the treasure. Yeah. And that could definitely be a possibility. Um, It's like we thought about the, they thought Odin and Thor were, you know, guarding these things, but obviously they're not. So, you know, it's, uh, we know there's stuff in there. (laughs) And you also have, you know, people are superstitious and some people aren't, or people are religious and some people aren't, you could say. And and a good example of this, if we go back to Egypt again, because, I mean, there's just so much history of death in Egypt. So there's a lot of comparisons. Um, I mean, it's just so old. So (laughs) there's just so much. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, there's so many superstitions attached to entering the tombs in Egypt, you know, and, and the priests would perform different rituals and there'd be curses, you know, we, you know, all the way into modern popular television shows, you know, we still talk about the curse of the Pharaoh, Mm -hmm. but it's because it was an actual thing in Egypt, you know, you'd be cursed if you entered the tomb, but you still get tomb after tomb after tomb after tomb that's been opened. Blundered, you know, and short periods after they've actually, so it's the same people, you know, burying, even though most of them are killed and stuff, someone finds out and they still go and plunder. So people are willing to risk the wrath of the dead to, in order to get the riches. And you find the same thing in the Viking age as well. I mean, I guess that that also says something about the society, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. uh, Um, Because these aren't necessarily being plundered years and years afterwards. It could be within the same generation mm. um and you have a wonderful example in Usabadik, which is the most the richest grave found ever discovered in scandinavia um and it's dated to the viking age um it's a burial containing two females actually so not just powerful men being buried but also go. very powerful women um and or very revered, revered women. Revered, you know, you know yeah. however you want to define what power actually is. Yeah, definitely. It's a good point. Um, but uh, these women um, in the grave, they have, they're buried with um, a whole number of horses, over 10 horses. They have the horse equipment. They have a bunch of practical everyday equipment, buckets. Um, there's... Apples. Things for food, yeah, apples. <laughs> it's, it's in, it was extremely well preserved. So, yeah, even like the remnants of apples are found in this grave. And they're buried in a ship. And the ship is amazing. It's the only one that has these extravagant carvings on it. So it's very easy to recognize if you see any pictures of um, Viking ships that have been preserved today. If it has carvings on it, it's this Ulsebatic ship. It's the only one that has that. Mm. Um, and so amazing things in there. But what hasn't been found is any any jewelry whatsoever uh and, and you'd so think one could, the women at the time would have some jewelry right? right right so i mean that is such an important thing in archaeology is to not conclude that because it's not there it didn't exist i usually tell people when we're talking about this i'll explain like you find very few textiles from the viking age but that does not mean that the vikings ran around naked right. it just means <laughs> hopefully not textile, in norway right <laughs> right textile doesn't preserve well but jewelry does gold is something that preserves the best in all all sorts of environments. Um, gold is just, it, do, it doesn't rust. It's and it doesn't an, an, antioxidant, yeah. Mm-hmm, exactly. So it's actually one of the easiest things for an archaeologist to find it's if gold. it has been placed there. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so nothing and it in shines. the Uzbek burial. And like you say, I mean, the, 
that is uncommon for a female burial uh, because wealthier Viking women, I mean, their they jewelry had, they would have horses, been very important. They had a ship, of course they got jewelry, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And so, but what has been found is an entry hole. So this is different than Buddha. Buddha, there's these huge, huge um, um, openings, trenches, yeah. basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where it's um, at Usabadi, it was more whole. Um, and so there, it does seem to be thieves or plunderers or whatever it is who have gone in specifically to take out the treasure because there is no treasure in the very traditional sense of the word. Right. <laughs> There's plenty of treasure otherwise for mm. archaeology. And the, but sh- no the, ship traditional probably, treasure. and the ship was probably too heavy to... To carry off. To have to take. But it's interesting <laughs> what they've taken with them because, I mean, there's some amazing finds there as well. I mean, there's still, there's a beautiful bucket, for example, with very intricate metal work on it that, you know, I would assume would have been worth something, but obviously not enough for them to take with them. Or maybe the other stuff was just so much more worth. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and we know a little bit about when it happened because we have their shovel, right? Well, yes, exactly. Um, we know when we have this the happened <laughs> because we have their fingerprints. They were caught red-handed, um, as red-handed as you can be caught a thousand years after the incident. Right. But yeah, they actually left behind a spade, um, which we know that the spade is from when the grave was plundered because it's older. Well, no, wait, it would be newer right. <laughs> than everything else that's found inside the grave. So, so apparently they ditched the spade and took the treasure instead. I mean, if you have to carry something, right? Then probably right. <laughs> the yeah, spade is not, not, the most, not the most valuable. <laughs> uh, but of course, uh, there are, is another theory then that um, some of the reasons for opening these would not necessarily be either to t- exhume the uh, the bodies or to take the treasure. Um, that you mentioned the kind of, of a um, uh, loading up magical objects. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Um, that's this idea where when it's been into the ground, especially in mounds, which are in many ways considered a portal to the, other the world. world of the dead, right? um, then these items travel to the world of the dead and anything that's been there and back again has become magical. Um, and we might have an example of this. Now I'm speculating, but it's possible. In the Goksta Mound, which is another famous ship burial, the second best preserved. I just, just want to uh, note that uh, there is some rustling. I'm not quite sure, but uh, if you're, you're that might be yeah. my hair. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> but um, very heavy hair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Goksta, um, yeah. Yeah, Goksta is a um, the second most famous ship burial and second best preserved. Um, this was a burial that belonged to a male, he, also an inhumation, so he wasn't cremated either, mm-hmm. um, and. Again, amazing finds in this burial, but no weapons. And this person, most definitely a warrior. He most likely died um, from the from being in battle. Um, there's signs of his um, leg having been cut, his thighs being cut, and it's just a brutal, brutal death that this person faced. Um, so a warrior. And if you're a warrior during the Viking Age, you're buried with the warrior set, which most typically includes a sword, an axe, two spears, and a shield. Helmets, actually, surprisingly, not very common during mm. the Viking Age. <laughs> right. Or at least, archaeologically, no. very few helmets have been found. And not the horn ones. <clears throat> and no horn ones. Although, 
as you also mentioned earlier in the uh-huh. podcast, there are indications of horns in earlier time periods, but not during the Viking Age. Right. Um, anyway, this uh, mound also has a hole, the ship has a hole in it from where people have entered after the ship has been buried, where they've gone in. And most likely the reason we're not finding any of the weapons is because they've been taken out and weapons particularly could have these mag- or would have these mag- would have been believed to have these magical properties. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a Roman Gripson saga uh, talks about uh, him entering a mound, beating this kind of deving that was in there, mm. um, and taking out uh, a sword specifically. Mm. Um, so it's also interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So in that w- in that way, you would um, it wouldn't necessarily be disrespect of the dead. Uh, Maybe there were things that you buried them with that you just wanted to get that kind of magical ability. Uh, yeah, I mean, then, you could argue then, that there's a lot of respect there, and then <laughs> and then co- then come back and 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 take that out and say like you've now taken this to the other world. It's been charged with deadly force, <laughs> de- mm-hmm. or the power of the de- of the kingdom of the dead. Yeah. Uh, one one of these magical swords is actually used, um, according to the saga, used during the birth of. Um, Olaf the Saint, Olaf the Nelia, because there's a, the story about his birth is that uh, his mother is struggling a lot with giving birth and it looks like things aren't going to end well until someone comes with a sword taken from the mound of Olaf, Olaf Geirstad Elf, who's one of these Vestfold kings. Uh, and they place the sword on top of her belly and she's able to give birth. And that's this magical property from this sword that has been in one of these mounds and taken out. I mean, how would that be? Right? <laughs> Here, let's put this sharp sword on top of your belly. That's that should, yeah. that should work. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's referring to that she had a C-section. Yeah, yep. That's maybe or like a like kind of like um, what's to say, uh, euphemism. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I don't know. <laughs> In any case, that's um, yeah. So the uh, there are um, things that have been purposely put in the earth all over the world and uh yeah. that uh, and what you purposely put in your earth and specifically with uh wind burials and what you bring with those that are buried uh it does say a lot about the culture as you've as you've as you've told us um it's uh obviously can't tell us everything but they're very very important um portals you could say into another world uh into another king into um, another realm that's uh, mm. lost now the um yeah, I guess, and I guess that's the feeling of a little bit of going inside the pyramids too. I've never been inside a pyramid, but you know that is a portal into another world, right? That was made specifically for the dead. Yeah, you definitely feel like you've entered a different world. Hmm. Well, that's right there. <coughs> that I think it's a good place to stop. Um, anything else that you would like to say, or any like last pitch that you'd like to make? Yeah, I was just thinking. You know, we've been talking about hidden treasures and and stuff, and I think that there definitely are a lot of hidden treasures still out there. Um, And we're discovering more and more, um, you know, almost every day, you know, especially with new technology and stuff arriving and things like that. And I think what's important as well is we're also learning what a treasure really is as well. Um, Because, you know, the early archaeology, end of 1800s, beginning of the 1900s, people really were, Treasure hunters, and that was the goal. The city of Troy um, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Exactly, they were looking for the treasures, and they were forgetting everything else. And we were learning more and more 
that you know the treasure is really understanding the past and uh, and there are a lot of hidden treasures still out there and that's a pitch for some more funding mm -hmm. <laughs> <clears throat> it really shocked me just to say that last time that there are no research there is no research archaeology um going on as far like explorative uh archaeology going on in norway uh very very limited or very, very um, limited yeah and if the, in, in it would be phd researches and stuff like that but the um, kind otherwise, of large Norway scale focuses on, program there's on rescue archaeology right. is what uh, when, when the main just main when you're when you're about to lose it rather than than you know conservation and discovery of things that you know that you haven't just stumbled upon yeah exactly so, and it's when we stumble upon things that we get to rescue it, as is the case now in Halden with one of these Viking ship burials being excavated there. And it's an amazing opportunity to be able to investigate one of these um, these sites that usually wouldn't, it sounds bad to say, wouldn't be prioritized, but um, would be left for the future. But in this case, because it is in danger of being destroyed, then it needs to be excavated quickly and thoroughly and well executed i can't help but think that there should be more um because i definitely think it's not just fascinating but i think this really does have value it connects us again to the past helps us understand how people lived before um and perhaps you know learning how people dealt with uh pandemics with uh, disasters with uh, the different things that they faced in their life and their societies it's true. I mean, I think also as, as an archaeologist, I would agree that the world will benefit more from more research archaeology as well, where the point is, well, I mean, the point is always to learn. Um, but there are some sites that we know we could learn a lot more from, but that we just don't have the resources to investigate any further at the moment. Hmm. I mean, I mean, but if, for example, being yeah, one of them. I may be very surprised because I just thought just, you know, we've dug up everything that is there. We obviously haven't. Uh, no. It's right no. in front of us, and you know we're just no, we don't just don't have the funding to not just get a shovel. Obviously, you have to do it very carefully, but still, <laughs> it's like it's right there. It's a buried treasure, and there are nobody many has, nobody's opened it. No, there are many hidden treasures at Bodestil, and that might be both in the traditional sense of the word, and most definitely in the more modern interpretation. Now that is a great place to stop. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's see. I will turn on the jingle which again you won't hear but uh, thank you for joining us at the writing history podcast um and uh thanks for christina christina leverkus she is at the um, cultural center at Bode, Bode. midgard viking center midgard viking center at Bode, so you can meet her there uh if you ever come to norway if you live in norway and uh, experience for yourself these monumental mounds and this uh, connection to the past thank you Thank you.